Our scripture passage for today will be familiar if you were here last week. It's a continuation of our reading as we go from Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Hear now the word of God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's go to our God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your instruction. We thank you for the care that you have for your people here in your word today. Please help us as we think about the subject of confrontation so that even in thinking about this, we have a heart of love and we have an interest in your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Has anyone ever confronted you about your sin? If you think back to a time when somebody has confronted you about your sin, how have you responded before? Uh, I think all of us would like to think that as soon as someone confronts us about our sin, we're quick to confess and we're quick to be restored. And yet I actually think that we respond sometimes in a variety of ways. Um, On the one hand, we may very well be quick to confess. And by God's grace, that means being restored to the brother or sister that had to confront us, that we sinned against. But we might do other things, right? We might deflect to others. We might blame others Uh, Sometimes we might give a a sort of pseudo-apology, you know, the very famous non-apology. I am sorry that you felt hurt. Uh, I'm sorry that you felt offended. Um, Something like that. It makes us feel like we've confessed and it makes us still feel like maybe it's sort of the other person's problem, right? But Jesus is speaking about something else here because here's what he assumes in this passage. He assumes that if you sin and you realize it, that you will own up to it and confess your sin. You actually see that in in Matthew chapter 5 where he talks about leaving your gift at the altar, going and being reconciled. Uh, And that's actually not what this passage is about. This passage is not about addressing your own sin. This morning, Jesus is talking about what we should do when we know someone else has sinned against us. Uh, This past week, I was communicating with one of our ruling elders, and he was saying to me, you know, the ideal is for Jesus 
uh, what he says in chapter 5, that the person realizes they've sinned against someone and they go to, to the person that they've sinned against. And then here in Matthew 18, he pictures the person who's been sinned against going to talk to the person who sinned against this against them. And if Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 are both working, what do they do? They meet on the way and they see each other and they're ready to be reconciled. It is very unusual for any Christian I know to sort of revel in the opportunity to confront someone else about their sin. Uh, anyone who does, I think, might have a, a screw loose, to be honest. Um, if, you, if you're just the person that's sort of pick, fixing for a fight, that's, a, that's not healthy. I think most of us fear that confrontation because we fear what that confrontation is going to do. We're afraid it's going to go bad. We're afraid that it's going to damage the relationship. Uh, and because we're afraid in our minds, we, our minds sort of race and we think, what will happen if this person finds out that they hurt me and they find out that, that I think they sinned against me, right? Maybe they won't talk to me anymore. Uh, maybe this person is going to think that I'm thin skinned and they'll just keep their distance from me. Maybe they'll think I, I'm overly sensitive or that I'm just kind of a baby. Or maybe they'll deny it and they'll say that it's actually me who sinned. What if the tables get turned? And we sort of have this internal wrestling. And I don't know if you're uh, that, that kind of personality where you work out the conversation before you have the conversation. But oftentimes we can talk ourselves out of doing the right thing in those moments. And we often instead decide to be paralyzed and not do anything. We put our heads down and we try to forget it. But one of the things that hopefully we saw last week is that it is often not possible for us to overlook an offense. Sometimes a confrontation truly is necessary when somebody has sinned against us. And last week we talked about the questions that we need to ask ourselves in the lead up to this kind of confrontation. And the three questions we talked about, is this person a believer? Is this even a sin? And then also, is this a sin against me? All of these things were sort of dealing not only with our own heart attitude, but with the status of this person and what God's goal is for them. But today Jesus gives the actual process. Today Jesus says, what do you actually do now that, that you've determined that this person has sinned, that this person is a believer, that this person is uh, somebody who has, has sinned against you? What do you actually do now? And so our three points are very naturally come right from the text. It's one of those alley-oop sermon outlines, to be quite honest. Um, first is confronting individually. Second is confronting with witnesses. And then third is confronting corporately. And so let's just move through this process that Jesus lays out here. We have an opportunity this morning just to see the wisdom of Jesus, to see the practicality of Jesus uh, just how realistic Jesus actually is toward his people. So first, Jesus speaks of confronting individually. This is, the, this is the first step in addressing sin, according to Jesus. You know, once we've addressed the questions last week and concluded this is a believer I'm dealing with, this is a sin we're talking about, yes, this is a sin against me, then the need arises for us to talk to the person face to face. What does Jesus say in verse 15? He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So Jesus tells us what to do. 
And aside from telling us to talk to this person, he gives very little instruction here. He doesn't tell us the details of how. He doesn't tell us word for word what we're supposed to say to the person. Uh, He's very sparing and simple. One place where we find more information on this is actually the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul gives us something that helps us in our confrontation. And you find it in Galatians 6. And in Galatians 6, 1, Paul tells us this. He says, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So, so notice that, that for Paul, it is not just important that we confront But he cares about the manner of our confrontation. He cares about the way that we say to someone that they have sinned. It's sort of like we saw last week that that the moment of confrontation is a dangerous moment. It's a dangerous moment for both because suddenly the the conflict can become about more than just the conflict. Sometimes instead of being about the sin, it ends up being about how badly we handled the sin. Well, Paul says... That, that we counteract this danger by doing it in a spirit of gentleness. That's the phrase that he uses. Paul is saying, don't be overly harsh. He's saying that we should be understanding that, that even as you're doing it, remember that you are mortal. Remember that you are flesh. Remember how easily you are drawn into sin. Paul, Paul says, don't just accuse him. He says, restore him. Restore him, right? If you're on your way to obey Jesus in this passage today, but as you're on your way, you find yourself angry or, or you find yourself prepared for a debate, you're gearing up for a fight. I think Paul would say, slow down. He would say, take a deep breath, pray for this person. Pray that God would be at work. Pray that he would use your words as part of the means of reclaiming this person. If you're going into that confrontation and you do not have a goal of seeing this person reclaimed, you are not ready to confront. See, Jesus cares about our our attitude. Paul, especially though, in his words here, tells us that he cares about our manner. He cares about our heart attitude in the confrontation. We need to care about it too. I'll also add another caution and, and an instruction that we see with Jesus because sometimes we can be angry with this person and the reason that we're angry is because we haven't adequately examined our own heart first. We haven't thought about ourselves nearly enough and nearly accurately enough because Jesus anticipates that we might go to confront someone in a sense of self-righteousness. Um, you see this elsewhere in the Gospels. He, he, he knows that we might go to this person and be ready to confront. And instead of doing it in a spirit of gentleness, like Paul tells us, we want to go in a spirit of self-righteousness. And, and, and we, we feel so right. This, this person seems so wrong. And, and it, it really doesn't occur to us at all that we've done anything to contribute to the situation. Um, Paul or Jesus cares how we do this. Think about what, what he says in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, Jesus asks this rhetorical question. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think part of what Jesus is saying is that our own sin can exaggerate the sin that we see in the other person. Uh, They've got a speck, right? This person has a speck. It looks really important to us. I've got to address this, right? Well, because of our own sin, instead of a humble, godly, loving, gentle attitude, we come in hot and, and we... And we come in with something that we definitely would call righteous anger. We're like, yeah, I'm going in with righteous anger. I'm not angry. I'm righteously angry. It's totally different. And in the danger, there is in the, in the encounter, there is so much danger. We can be more irritable. We can be far less gracious. We can magnify what you think this person did. And we can magnify just how virtuous we think we are in the situation. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he's telling this funny story about a log in somebody's eye. It's a ridiculous story. It's meant to be ridiculous because it is ridiculous for us to try to confront somebody over their sin in a spirit of self-righteousness. It is that ridiculous. We should be prepared. If we are preparing to confront, we should also be prepared to be confronted or even to lead the way by confessing our own sin and the way we've contributed to that situation, right? Because if we don't do that, we go into the confrontation and we expect to really tear down this person without building them back up and without recognizing our own faults and without recognizing our own sin. We can go in like that. And sometimes we can look for more than is required to restore the person. And so instead of just an apology or a recognition. We, we want humiliation. Instead of making amends, we want some blood. Right? We don't just want this first person to feel as bad as they made us feel, but we're looking for our pound of flesh. Uh, it can feel terrible to be on the receiving end of this sort of confrontation. If you've ever had someone come to you and you realize they're not here to restore you at all, it's actually very terrifying from a Christian perspective. To have someone confront you in self-righteousness. Um, I remember years ago, um, we had a disagreement with another family. You know, you may not know this, but families in seminary can have conflict too. And, and we had co- uh, conflict with another family in the seminary. And I, I don't want to give very many details. But here's what happened. We recognized that we had done wrong in the situation. And so we went to the adults in the family. And we recognized our fault. And we apologized. We asked for forgiveness. And instead of offering forgiveness, instead of offering restoration, the other family pivoted. And they immediately, once we said we were wrong and we sinned, they said, oh, well, well, we weren't actually hurt at all. We were just concerned about your souls. And they told us that we shouldn't even be apologizing to them. They said, really, we were supposed to go to the Lord with this because this was really God that we had sinned against, not them even though we knew that they had been hurt by our actions. And and so here's what happened. In reality, we had sinned. We had sinned against them and, and we left them hurt and offended. But looking back, uh, especially with the distance of time, 
We knew something had gone wrong there. What had gone so wrong? I think we can see what went wrong. They came to confront, but not to restore. They came to confront, but not to restore. So we had sinned, but they didn't want to admit that they'd been hurt by our sin. And what this also meant was that in their minds, they didn't have to offer forgiveness. And so because of, according to them, we had nothing to forgive, even though we'd hurt them. So we asked forgiveness and we were refused forgiveness. We, were, we received no forgiveness from them. We received a rebuke and it was a rebuke that hurt all the more because it didn't come in humility. It, it wasn't done in a spirit of gentleness to restore us. Here's the question. Are you willing to make it a high priority when you confront that you will come in humility and gentleness and not in self-righteousness? That is a trickier balance than you might think, you know, because because psychologically, what do we do when we need to confront someone? We psych ourselves up. (laughs) We psych ourselves up and we we sort of settle in in our minds. I'm in the right here. I'm sure it's right for me to confront it. it, We feel like that's the only way that we can do it is if we can tell ourselves that. And so that gives you the courage to go talk to this person. But here's the problem. If you rely on your own self-confidence as the motivator to get you to go, then you convince yourself that you are in the right and you go in your own power. And then it's very easy for you to say in the confrontation, oh, this poor misguided soul, I shall set them straight. And that's not humility, that's self-righteousness. Will you come ready to forgive, prepared to restore Because God has done that for you. If you only plan to come as prosecutor and judge, let me say you might as well stay home. Because you aren't ready to confront the way Jesus and Paul tell us to. If we don't confront in a spirit of gentleness, here's what happens. We beat the person down with the law. And we show no grace. And we amplify the sin. And we amplify the hurt. And there is no restoration. See, this whole first step is very, oh, it's so wise and it's so practical by Jesus, right? Just think of what it means to go to this person individually. It means that if you've gone to them individually, it means they are able to avoid public embarrassment. What a, what a practical thing. Just, just thinking Jesus just knows human nature so much. You go to this person alone. The fire doesn't spread. It stays between just these two people. It's so practical. Um, they have to still be humble, right? But only, they only have to be humble before you and the Lord. They don't have to be humble before a crowd or, or a gang of people, right? Um, you go individually. Here's what happens. You increase the likelihood that they will be restored. After all, it's just the two of you, right? They have an opportunity to deal with their own sin without an audience except the one person that it actually concerns and the Lord, right? Going individually allows us to protect the good name of this person. It protects us from the temptation to perform for others who weren't there and don't really know what happened. This instruction from Jesus is immensely practical. I'm just... It shouldn't surprise me in scripture that Jesus knows what we are like. Jesus 
was a man, he, he is a man, he walked the earth, he knew what it was like to have emotions and feelings and to be sinned against by other people. Think of how many times Jesus himself personally confronted people about sin. Jesus knows what this is like. And he knows this, that if a whole crowd of people comes to you, you may be prone to self uh, self-promotion, self-defense, to, to performance. You may be prone to acting like nothing is wrong. But remember, the goal here for Jesus is not that we come out feeling justified and righteous as some sort of accuser or prosecutor. That's a temptation for us. That's a danger for us. It's not the goal Jesus has for us. The goal is the glory of God being seen in the confession and repentance of sin. Notice that Jesus envisions this hopeful outcome in verse 15. He says, if he listens to you, you have, you have gained your brother. That is the goal here. That, right? that the goal here is that they listen to you. That is the prayer. That is the hope. The goal is for this person to hear what you have to say. It's what we're aiming at in this whole process that Jesus is teaching here. The goal is the restoration of the relationship, not just between us and this person, but between them and the Lord. Because if, if they have sin that hasn't been addressed, then they have an issue between them and God, not just you and them. That's why we say at the beginning, we said last week, we need to make sure this thing we're confronting them about is actually sin. Because if it is then this is completely relevant. Now, I said Jesus is realistic. Here is the sad reality, and Jesus acknowledges it here. Sometimes this does not result in the restored relationship. And that means Jesus tells us to move to step two. Second, Jesus says that if confronting alone doesn't work, then comes the step of confronting with witnesses. Look at verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen, it's so sad that Jesus has to build in this possibility, right? He has to build this possibility and they might not listen to you. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice here what Jesus is, is envisioning. He's, he's still envisioning discretion, right? This is not the sort of thing where you get a crowd of people and you say, hey, we're all going to talk to this guy. You want to come? <laughs> that is not what he's talking about here. Think about this. The, the circle of knowledge on this matter is still small, right? It, it's larger than it was before, but it's not large, It's still not a lot of people are supposed to know about this. Because remember, again, the more there are more reasons than this, but this is one just practical reason. The more people know about this, practically speaking, the more the person will feel defensive. The more people in the loop, the greater the opportunity for someone to dig in their heels, to worry about public perceptions. This also means that if you go as a witness and the person repents... You put it away forever and you don't repeat the matter again. This is one or two people that have to put the matter away and forget about it versus a whole crowd, which is basically impossible to stop, right? Um, If it's not a crime and it isn't the purview of the civil authorities, then no one else needs to know besides the person who is sinned against. Um, So even though this is discreet, 
It does represent a very real increase of pressure on the person being confronted. That's, that's Jesus' plan here. There's a practicality to this. The pressure is increasing. Now, here's, here's a really practical question. Who should you bring along as your, as your extra witness? Um, you should bring someone who is wise. You should bring someone who is mature, someone who is known for their care, someone who is known for their discretion. Uh, I would not advise somebody who tends to gossip to you, right? If you have somebody who's pretty leaky on information, that may not be the person to bring along for this confrontation. Um, and, and again, you don't want a firebrand either. You don't want to just pick someone who's the toughest person you know, the sort of person who starts forest fires with their tongue, right? That's not the kind of person to bring along. You need to bring someone who has the same mission in mind, restoring a person in gentleness. If in doubt, if you're, like, if you're just racking your brain, trying to think, who should I bring? You can come to me. You can come to one of the elders here. Um, all of us should match that description. If we don't match that description, we honestly shouldn't be elders in Christ's church. Um, but the idea here is that a second witness can confirm that, yes, indeed, this was done in a spirit of gentleness. This was, this was done with humility. It was done in, with a careful attitude. But the, but the primary pur- purpose of the third party is to impress upon the person the seriousness of the situation and to serve as a witness to what's happening. Um, Calvin, in his commentary, says this. He says, this second witness is to give greater weight and impressiveness to the admonition. You know, if you've ever had a relationship with someone where they tend to sort of write off uh, whenever you complain. Some, some of us are squeaky wheels, right? And sometimes you have people in your life, maybe a family member, maybe just a friend. You're so familiar with the other person that when you try to tell them they sinned against you, they totally write it off and don't take it seriously. You could imagine that kind of a situation. Um, Sometimes someone says you hurt them or you sinned against them and you go, ah, they're just very sensitive. I know this person. We're good. We're fine. And you just sort of write them off. Um, But when another person comes to, it communicates something different. It communicates this may be more serious than I originally thought. I should stop being so dismissive. Another role of the second witness is that it's implied that they should be gathering evidence and ascertaining the guilt of the person, right? Um, make sure there isn't confusion here. That's why it's important for this person not to just be a friend of the person they're going with. They need to be somebody who is wise and fair and, and impartial, somebody who's known for being wise and good. Remember, though, the goal here is the same as it's always been. The goal is restoration. The goal is redemption. We want these two sinners to be reconciled through acknowledging sin and repenting, right? This person isn't supposed to be reconciled and then restored to friendship. uh, And it is supposed to be reconciled and restored to friendship. And they're supposed to be reconciled to the Lord. Here's the problem. Sometimes things do go bad and sometimes things go worse. Sometimes even the added witnesses do nothing to move a person who is especially rooted in their sin. So then third, Jesus adds the step of confronting corporately. We see it happen here in verse 17. The way that Jesus phrases it, the way that Jesus states it, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, 
tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, So first of all, notice who this is to be told to. If the person won't repent before the witnesses, Jesus says it is the church that this is to be told to. Right? It's not just some random group of Christians somewhere, but one that they have an established and understood relation with. The, the word we use this uh, use the, for this today in our vernacular, in our language, is the word membership. Um, we know someone has a relationship if they are members of a church. Um, one of the things that it, it's sort of a gong that I love to ring periodically is this reminder that the church is not a human invention. Um, it is Jesus's intention that every Christian belong to something he calls the church. And this is not just the sort of nebulous universal church that all Christians are a part of when they become believers that, that Jesus is talking about here. Um, you can't. Uh, you can't tell it to an invisible group of people. You have to tell it to an, an identifiable group of people, a local church, a local church that this person is a part of, a, a church that has elders that you know, and a pastor who knows you. Um, you can't do what Jesus says here with the invisible church. You can't tell it to the invisible church. In other words, Jesus is talking about a specific body that we're actually a part of. Now, If you're new here, you've never heard this from me before. And if you've been here for longer than a year, you've definitely heard this from me before. But you may be a Christian, but are you a member of a local church? Do you belong to a people of God who, if it was necessary, they could do for you what Jesus says to do here? Which church could excommunicate you if you refused to repent? Who out there does God expect to love you enough to do this for you if it comes right down to it? The church is not a human invention. Jesus invented it and he intends it for our own good. So here's the reality. The unrepented sin is supposed to be told to the church, right? If the person won't listen, it has to go before the local body of Christ that this person belongs to. This is the last stage of appeal. This is the final opportunity for this person to repent and be begged by the body of Christ to turn and, and, be, and be restored. But if that doesn't happen, Jesus says what the end of the line looks like as far as the church's role is concerned. Jesus' phrase for this is, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is Jesus' way of saying, treat him like he is. Treat him as someone who no longer belongs to the assembly of God's people. Um, I used the word already, but the word for this is excommunication. Um, We see this not just in Jesus' words here. We see this in the writings of Paul. Um, Paul gives an example of a situation like what Jesus is talking about here. In in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, a man is, is sleeping with his father's wife. And in that situation in Corinth, the man is unrepentant. The man continues in his sin, and the man has no interest in changing course. And in this specific situation, Paul tells the church of Corinth what must take place. And and what he describes is what we sometimes call 
excommunication. It's to remove from communion. Ex meaning from, communication meaning communion. To remove from communion in the church. To remove them from the membership and all the benefits that entails, including the Lord's Supper. Listen to the way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. For Paul, doing nothing is not an option. Now, here is the thing that you probably have noticed before. There are churches in our land who don't practice this at all. And it's not because they haven't had opportunities or situations where they probably should be taking place. But it's simply because they don't have a doctrine of excommunication. Many churches don't even have communication to begin with and membership to begin with. So they can't excommunicate anyway. So you have passages in scripture where Paul and Jesus give us commands and it's just not obeyed. Now, hopefully the reason the church you're a part of doesn't do excommunication is because we haven't had to. Um, That is certainly the hope. That is certainly uh, the desire. But here's the thing. For Paul, it's not an option to do nothing, right? This person's sin, if it's left unaddressed, becomes the church's sin. And that's what Paul is actually telling the church in Corinth. This sin is becoming your sin. Because you are now beginning to be proud of the fact that you haven't addressed this man's sin. And so Paul is saying paralysis is not an option. Jesus is saying paralysis is not an option. Um, This is the end of the matter for Jesus until the person is restored. Now this is very important. One of the things Paul is very helpful with here is that even the act of excommunication is a hopeful thing. And it's hopeful because it's got a redemptive goal. Because you might, you might hear what Paul says in those words of excommunication. You think, what is hopeful about that? That is one of the darkest things I ever read in the Bible. But he says the redemptive goal is this. The destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You hear that? That optimistic ending there, right? This is an in-depth discussion of of what destruction of the flesh means. I'm going to just move past it and and say, uh, ask Matthew. He's been doing that in the mornings on Wednesdays. Uh, He'll do a great job answering that. I know it's an easy question. Um, but, But Paul's hope here is this, that in being excommunicated from the church, the point is not for them to go away ashamed into exile forever. Instead, the hope is the opposite, that this person would reach the end of themselves, that they would confess their sin, that they would experience salvation. In other words, the excommunicated person is not beyond hope. An excommunication does not mean that this person will never be able to be saved now. The hope is that they would instead return to communion with God and his people once again. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying, too. The purpose of this harsh confrontation of excommunication is not punishment. This is not penal. This is is meant to not be a punishment, but a restoration. For a repentant person, for a repentant Christian, Christ has been fully punished in our place. So the point of all of this is not punishment. 
The purpose of excommunication is the restoration of the sinner and the glory of God. And Jesus is saying that if someone is not repentant, to keep them in the church would reinforce their sin. It would cement them in their self-righteousness and in their defensiveness. And it would convince them that all is well. By excommunication, something, something very definitive and drastic has happened to this person. And they can't go on pretending like everything is normal. I, I don't know if any of you have any experience with excommunication. I hope, I hope you haven't actually. Um, I have seen and heard of both types of responses. You will be very glad to know I've never presided over an excommunication in a church. I truly hope never to have to. But I have been present in two situations where excommunication happened. In one situation, the man refused to repent of his adultery. And he ran away with his mistress. And he abandoned his family. And to this day, he has not returned to the church. That is a sad outcome. I saw a similar situation where the person did something very different. Instead of saying they, instead of, of defending themselves and continuing in their sin, they said they were sorry. But they only went through the motions of repentance and they never showed the fruits of repentance and they were sadly destroyed by their sin. These are two sad outcomes where confrontation is necessary. But I also know of very joyful situations where someone was confronted for their sin. They were excommunicated because they did refuse to repent. And yet also in this person's case, that wasn't the end of the story. That person came back to the church. He came back in humility. He came back in repentance. And he was restored in a spirit of gentleness like Paul talks about. This person showed the fruits of repentance. He was restored to full communion with God's people. And today, you would never know about this person's transgression or this person's excommunication. In his church, the sin became a forgotten thing eventually. What a glorious thing. And it shows us that God uses this process both to purify his church and to restore people to his church. But that requires taking sin seriously. More seriously than we're comfortable with. Jesus is so realistic. He is not, he is not surprised by sin within the church. Um, you remember the story Jesus told of the wheat and the tares, right? The church is, is a mixed body. Uh, on this earth, it's not a pure, perfect gathering. See, Jesus is realistic. He plans for sin to happen. And so he gives us these types of instructions. Now, I want you to see the very end of this passage. Um, Jesus reinforces the decision to excommunicate following this process. And he does it by repeating something that he already said back in Matthew 16. Word for word. Jesus ends this discussion of excommunication and restoration by saying, Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So if you remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he's telling Peter about the keys of the kingdom that the church has been given by Jesus. 
Here, Jesus takes that discussion of the keys of the kingdom and he directly applies it to confrontation. And specifically, he applies it to excommunication as a valid example of exercising the keys of the kingdom. Think of, think of the fact that Jesus at the very end here has to repeat this passage from Matthew 16. I think Jesus knows what an uncomfortable situation this places us in to have to do this kind of thing. And so Jesus is fortifying the church with his own promises, with his own gifts, with his own blessings, because he knows that these things are hard. He knows it is easier to put our heads down and ignore. He doesn't want us to do that. And so how does he fortify us? He gives us the keys of the kingdom and he reminds us that they're ours. Um, the reality is sometimes sin happens and it has to be answered. And, and it has to be answered not because we look forward to confrontation or because we're trigger happy or because we relish the opportunity, but because sin is real and because the glory of God matters. No one likes to think about these things. I actually suspect that you're probably sitting there right now going, I don't feel very uplifted today. This feels like a dark place that we're passing through in this passage. I hope you don't feel that way. I hope you see the hope of Christ saturating this passage. But I I don't even like the first steps of the the passage today, to be honest. If your brother sins against you, we're already off on a a dark foot, aren't we? Even that is such an ugly thought. I'd rather cover my eyes. I'd rather focus on the good. But Jesus loves his church too much to be indifferent about us. We will sin. Of course we will in this life. The question is not whether we will sin. The question is, will we repent? The question is not whether we will sin. The question is whether we will repent. If we will not, We need someone in our life who loves us enough to step out, stick out their neck, take a risk, and warn us to turn, to warn us to hear the Lord's words, to show us the way of restoration, even if that means hard love, hard love. I hope you never need this. I hope no one in this church ever has to experience this process that Jesus is talking about. I hope I go my whole ministry without ever needing to utter those words from Paul except when I'm preaching a sermon. But if the time comes where it is needed, I guarantee you, you will need someone to take this seriously and you will need someone to take your sin seriously. And you will need someone to love you enough to tell you the truth, to offer you the grace of Christ when you return. And I will tell you this, you will find this in a church that is guided by God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray that you would protect us from falling back onto human cleverness or wisdom or invention, anything that doesn't come from you in the matters that we've looked at today. May we be faithful to and guided by your word. Would you be with us in those times when we need to confront? But especially, Lord, would you be with us in those times when we need to be confronted? Make us open and ready and quick to repent. 
Shape us and change us for the sake of your church and the glory of your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.